0: Hi, and welcome to the Remote Warfare Program's podcast. My name is Liam Walpole, and I'm joined by...
1: Megan Cousley-Peterson. I'm the Policy and Research Assistant for the Oxford Research Group's Remote Warfare Program.
0: And I'm delighted to have Dr. Larry Lewis here. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, um, you know that the, the Remote Warfare Program has been examining this shift uh, in military engagement overseas, where, uh, from the UK's perspective, it's working with partners on the ground, providing security assistance. Um, and one of the concerns we have on this is how civilians are affected in conflicts, and what this approach, uh, what the implications of the pro- this approach will have on civilians. So I just wondered if you could just touch on your your background working for the um, Obama administration, um, and then we'll go into a bit more detail about some of the, the studies you've done on the US providing assistance to, for example, the. Uh, to Saudi Arabia and the countries in
2: Yemen. Certainly. So so even before I, I uh, so I was at the State Department, but before that, and the reason I joined the State Department was that I worked with uh, US DOD uh, for many years looking at current operations. So I I spent time in the in support of the campaign in Iraq and then also in the campaign in Afghanistan and working with some of the leadership there. On different issues that they were interested in, uh, I also looked at other partnered operations, including Mali, uh Ministry of Security Assistance, context, also the Philippines and Colombia. So, looking at different contexts and how the U.S. works, <laughs> works and can work uh, with partners more effectively. Uh, so, so, after after all that work, kind of doing doing all the research. I got to use that uh, from a policy perspective at the State Department as a senior advisor for
0: uh, looking at civilian harm. Fantastic. And and you touched on Afghanistan there because I know that um, you've talked about this as an example of how the U.S. learned lessons while uh, the operation was ongoing, while the war was ongoing. Clearly that was a large combat deployment Mm -hmm. uh, where the U.S. has more strategic control in terms of how it can have that relationship with the Afghan government, for example, but also people on the ground to implement a particular policy. How how do you um, see the shift there, if I might put it that way, from the lessons and the... the policy approach that we could put in place in that context, to how we could t- draw those lessons and put them in a context where we're fighting through warfare through partners.
2: Mm-hmm. So I think even Iraq and Afghanistan are instructive because if you look at the Iraq campaign, so which, which Iraq campaign? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so very true. The, the, the two thousand three to two thousand nine campaign. Yeah. That started very much unilaterally, and it, of course it was a coalition, but it was mostly U.S. with the mm-hmm. U.K. and Bosworth. Uh, so it started very unilaterally and then became more partnered, and then there was a transition to the, the host host nation really taking responsibility for security, and that same model was used in Afghanistan. Um, the, the irony, though, is that the same overall approach was used, but the lessons weren't, weren't drawn from one to the other. And that's something that, that I see over and over, is that you know, there there may be learning localized within one particular operation, mm-hmm. but overall, the institution is not learning these key lessons. So. You make the same mistakes, or, or sometimes different mistakes, mm-hmm. uh, r- repeatedly in all these different contexts. And, and as you say, partnering is the new
0: is the mm-hmm. new way of war. We see that in so many contexts. So, do you think, because it's interesting, cause you've got the the fact that we are partnering, uh, and more often now than we have been in the past, perhaps, or at least in the recent past, in Afghanistan, obviously we're deployed on the ground, so you can have a more of an effect. But there's also then that added issue in terms of how lessons are being learned, so it might not necessarily be partnering being sort of the default issue, but it's how you learn those lessons institutionally and then apply them. Is that sort of?
2: Yeah, I think there there is there there is a larger issue. So so there are two issues and they're related. So mm-hmm. so the one is that the U.S. and the U.K. and other countries are relying more and more on partnering. Yeah. But they haven't thought deeply. About how to do that, yeah. especially in a way that accounts for the increased risk mm-hmm. uh, to civilians because of that result. So, so there's that's kind of a strategic problem. And then, uh, compounding to that is there's a there's a learning problem that that means that there are experiences that could help us to think through strategically these risks,
0: but we're not learning, and so. So we're not getting better at that Mm -hmm. overall strategic problem. Well, maybe we'll get back to how we can (laughs) to uh, Mm -hmm. do better in terms of how we learn, but perhaps it would be useful just to look at um, some case studies. So um, from the remote warfare's perspective, we uh, commissioned a piece by the Policy Institute of Kings to look at the UK-Saudi security relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is often a line that many foreign sectors have sort of advocated that by engaging with Saudi Arabia, we are able to prevent bombs going off in the streets here in the UK. That report challenged that argument uh, and said at least based on the publicly accessible information and evidence, it is actually in fact perhaps the other way around, in terms of Saudi Arabia having more influence over us than we do over the practices happening in, in Saudi Arabia, and particularly in the war in Yemen. Now, I know that you have recently been doing some research around the US assistance uh, to Saudi Arabia so I just wonder whether you might want to just comment on sort of learning from as this mm-hmm. promoting civilian protection during security assistance is sort of the, the, the study that you've been doing and what lessons we can learn.
2: Sure and, and so so my, my thoughts on Yemen are, are, are formed by my time in the State Department and of course Yemen was was a a really key issue um, starting in 2015 when the campaign started. Uh, And there was, just like in the UK, there was... Much unhappiness about the messiness of the campaign. Being all, seeing all these different targets, civilian targets being uh, being struck uh, in the midst of U.S. security systems. So the U.S. was providing aircraft, was providing bombs, was providing intelligence, refueling. So all this operational enabling. Uh, and then seeing the messiness of the campaign, so around the, the summer of 2015, uh, the U.S. National Security Council basically got together and was like, "This is not, this is not what we want." So there, so at the highest levels, there was unhappiness with what was happening, uh, and, and so uh, so I was asked to go and kind of. Apply my uh, past experience working with militaries mm-hmm. to go work with the Saudi-led coalition, uh, and I did. I did that for a while, um, and actually, you know, to, to make a long story short, um, it actually was more successful than people realize. Okay. Um, so in the in the short term, because it was really only I worked with them about five months until until a ceasefire happened, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and in that five months. if we had, we had some data that is not publicly available. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, using that data, you could actually see that there was some improvement. Um, there was definitely, <laughs> it wasn't perfect by any means, uh, but it was it was a start, and we're trying to build upon that. In fact, I helped them form the GIAC, the mm-hmm. Joint Incident Assessment Team, yeah. and that was, it's often misunderstood. Because uh, people kind of look at it now and think that it was this, this uh, organization intended to do kind of inquiries with for you know, for legal reasons. That's that wasn't the idea at all. It really was developed as a as a learning tool to help the coalition to identify patterns of harm and then identify operational uh, refinements that they could do to improve the campaign. Uh, so anyway, two more <laughs> well, no, no, But, but through, through that work, I did get uh, a really clear picture into some of the problems that they were having. Um, and through that, it also showed me what the U.S. and the U.K. typically do. So in that argument of they're better off because the U.S. Yeah. and the U.K. are there, uh, you know, th- there are a couple couple ways that can happen. First is magic. <laughs> so, you know, so so you, you send US, UK forces over, they, they, they touch and something magically is transferred yeah. into the gutter. Yeah. So, I didn't see yeah. that happening. Um, the, 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 the second is often what they will do is they will provide remedial training. So, we would send over lawyers, and in the UK send over lawyers kind of the basics of international humanitarian law. Um, they'd also do things like targeting. So targeting 101, here's basic targeting doctrine. Uh, the, the Saudis were kind of offended by some of this, mm-hmm. right? You know, especially for the legal stuff. They're like, do you think we don't know what this does? Yeah. Um, but the, the other piece is, and this comes back to my work in Afghanistan, you know, T- trying to work with, with international forces to help them reduce the mm-hmm. casualties. What I found is, um, I came in 2009, they had been trying since 2006 to try to get a handle yeah. of this and it hadn't worked. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason it didn't work is because they were kind of focused on these really general principles. Um, and what what I found worked in Afghanistan is identifying the very specific patterns of harm and making very specific changes. And that really had a measurable effect. You could see the numbers of casualties go down. So, so when I went in and was working with the Satellite Coalition, I wasn't just saying. You know, remember, you need you know two sources of intelligence hmm. for, for, for strikes. No, it was actually looking at their operations and and their operational design and saying. What are the specific problems that are leading to these disastrous strikes over and over? And if you did that, you actually found that there were specific mechanisms, mistakes mm-hmm. that they would do over and over. So if you can just get them to correct those mistakes, and those mistakes often aren't in a targeting 101 presentation, and often, you know, general international humanitarian law doesn't get into the details of these sort of things. So that is is a way for the U.S. and the U.K. to positively impact the
0: the conduct of a partner, but that's not what the U.S. and U.K. approach is. So one of the concerns, I suppose, and something that we've been looking at is around uh, legal complicity. Mm uh, we had a report that came out in, in May on this. and I suppose and it'd be interesting because I think you've talked about this from your experience being with the Saudis. Um, at what point is a country at risk of provoking litigation measures from civil society groups if you are seen to be complicit although you are the, at least openly trying to reduce civilian harm by? Helping and targeting and understanding IHL compliance, etc. How do you think countries can balance that? How can civil society and government work together to alleviate those concerns? Mm-hmm. That's an excellent question.
2: <laughs> so, in fact, um, the the work that I was doing was stopped because of some lawyers in in the U.S. government saying we're really concerned about legal complicity, and they didn't yeah. say there was legal complicity. They just said we're concerned, and of course. People and people here, lawyers are concerned. Mm-hmm. That's that's not, <laughs> not for you. So, um, but but and I've thought about this and you know, talked ICRC, which mm-hmm. really a good source for, for this. So, um, so, let me just offer two two answers yeah. that are related. Um, one is so the U.S. Um, at this time they were providing two ty- types of support. One was help to. help, helping them to be more responsible in their campaign, more careful, more responsible for better operational outcomes, sparing civilians. The other was operational support. So we're giving you weapons, we're giving you intelligence, we fueling. So um, a logical, Thing to do, and, and and in my report I talk about the Leahy Law in the U.S., which mm-hmm. is a, which is kind of an analogous situation. So, in, in, like in the Leahy Law, what happens is if you have concerns about a partner, what you do is you stop enabling them operationally on a temporary basis, but you work with them in a remedial basis to help them. You know, give them you know, for it's. Leahy is about human rights violations. So, you give them human rights training, you give them, you help them to be more accountable as an institution. And then, when you see benefits, then you restore the operational support. So, what the US did is the exact opposite. (laughs) So, they they stopped the kind of work that could help them be more responsible, but they kept on enabling them to operate. So, I think that was a, a strategic mistake. Um, it should have been the other way around, and this actually is consistent with, with IHL. You think about two basic obligations of states under IHL in, in uh, Common Article One. One is to comply with IHL in their operations as a party to a conflict, but the second is to promote respect for IHL, even if you're not a party to a conflict. So you can you can see sort of this remedial work. Is, is actually, it's not a violation, actually it's a great fulfillment of an IHL obligation that states often don't do.
1: So can I can just jump in there and ask, so I think it, it sounds like there's a disconnect between what's being talked about in the very legal realm of this and then the actual practical application of, of doing those things, mm-hmm. like continuing training. And why do you think there's that disconnect between what um, lawyers are calling out as possible legal liability, but then the actual strategic continuation of those of those programs.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, so, so I think one of the problems is that we are relying entirely on IHL as mm-hmm. as the framework, mm-hmm. uh, and IHL is important. So if you if you have a clear violation of IHL, then that should that, that is enough reason to act. But the reality is working with partners it's very very difficult to have clear evidence of IHL violations because uh, you sort of need to know what the intent was you know what intelligence they had yes. and you just don't know that so so then you get this situation with the US and UK saying well we have no evidence of IHL violations well there's a reason because mm-hmm. it's really hard to have that yeah. know, from the outside so so well, so what I advocate for is, in addition to the IHL safeguards that are important, but in practical terms with partners are very weak, um, is also look at operational outcomes. Mm-hmm. So the fact is, you know, IHL violations are not, uh, you know, if you have evidence or not, that we know that they're hitting hospitals, mm-hmm. that they're hitting lots of civilian areas in urban settings. And this is a not a good thing. Uh, not a good thing for for the, for the people in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not a good thing for the, the, the you know, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. It's not good yeah. for them reputationally. It's not good for the U S. It's not good for the U K. Mm-hmm. So, just from a policy perspective, you can also uh, put in this policy that says, look, even if even if there's not an iron shell, you know, evidence for violations, there's still reasons for us from a policy perspective, to come in yeah. and we're gonna we're gonna you know, put some brakes on some of the yeah. operational support and then strengthen the, uh,
0: the the remedial kind of support. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's something that we concluded in our Report in May that I've already mentioned. It, it was entitled "Lawful but Awful," mm-hmm. and that sort <laughs> yes. of comes from the fact that you know something might be deemed legal, mm-hmm. but does that make policy sense? Right. And that goes back to your the, your experiences in Afghanistan mm-hmm. as well. In terms of, it was better strategically and as part of sort of military success as well to reduce civilian casualties, so they could achieve ultimately what they wanted to achieve. Exactly,
2: because because there were there were lots in in Afghanistan. There were lots of. Legal allegations of IHL violations, and when I mean they were all investigated, and of course you know it's the U.S. investigating, okay? So, but but you know I I got to look at this, and you know really there are so many ways to make operational mistakes that kill mm-hmm. civilians yeah. that are not IHL violations. So just equating civilian casualties with IHL okay. is 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 okay. not perfect. So so having a civilian casualty uh, bar in addition to an HL bar, allows you
0: to guard some of the policy elements to this. That's really good. Megan, I don't know if you wanted to just, we want to get on to talk about the counter-ISIS campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you wanted to just sort of ask some questions about, from the UK perspective, yeah, what so the yeah. challenges have been and what our concerns have been as um, an organisation about this.
1: So I guess just to give a very quick like overview, of it. so the UK has been involved in the um, anti-ISIS campaign since September 2014. In um, that time, we've only been second to the US in the amount, like the amount of airstrikes that have been conducted. And yet, the UK has only recognized one civilian casualty. Um, so I think there's been a, a, quite a big push from the civil society in the UK to kind of try to approach that from a new perspective. And like you say, try to have more, um, say it's not just about I- IHL, but how do we actually talk about this? And how do we try to push for more um, and better monitoring? So I was wondering, like, do you have any advice for the UK <laughs> government in doing, in doing this process and starting mm-hmm. to recognize yeah. this?
2: Certainly. So, so I've done lots of research on this. I mean, and, and using you know, military, sensitive military data um, from an insider perspective, uh, looking at this analytically, what does the data say? Uh, and the data says a lot. There is so <laughs> much that militaries can learn about civilian casualties. The very first study, I feel like half the study was just like a myth busters exercise. Mm -hmm. You think that, that, you know, X, like you think that civilian casualties happen from this situation, but actually often they happen in this other situation Mm -hmm. that you're not thinking about at all. Uh, and you know, so so just lots of different, um, kind of setting the record straight. So. so that's the past studies. The last year, the Joint Staff, um, so basically the you know, U.S. military, uh, commissioned a study to look at the numbers in, mm-hmm. in Iraq and Syria. So, so there was a lots of attention on the, the coalition, largely in the U.S., but, but coalition, uh, some of the coalition civilian casualty numbers mm-hmm. were very low, right? And then you have folks at air wars that yeah. have much higher numbers. So they said okay, what's going on? Are the U.S. numbers right? Mm -hmm. And why is there a big difference? So we did this study um, and I will say that the data I had is not just US. It's it a coalition. So, um, so data's out there. Um, but it was a US study. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know b- bottom line, the, the numbers, the official numbers put out by the coalition on the casualties are not right. They're yep. they're an underestimation, and you know we look analytically, there are specific reasons why they're too low. Mm-hmm. So s- systemic biases that gets you to lower numbers in several pieces of
0: that overall assessment process. I think it might just be worth also asking, um, now that the UK has agreed to update its protection of civilian strategy, whether you think that this is the right place to discuss you know, some of the challenges that the military have. You know, They're working a very complex environments. There's, what, 79 members of this coalition. Um, they're working in urban, densely populated areas. And there's lots of challenges there. Um, and I don't know if you caught it, but at a recent Defence Committee inquiry, one of the concerns that came up, our director was given evidence of that that, that inquiry, but one of the concerns from an MP was that one, the um, the civilian recordings, casualty recordings from organisations like Air Wars are inaccurate, are inflated, Uh, and two, that if the government does come out and admit more than it is at the moment, let's put it that way, um, that this would have a negative impact on the capacity for the government to be able to engage overseas because it would lead to a public Mm-hmm. There's a lot there I'm asking. Yeah. But um, I just would be interested in your thoughts on some of those arguments. Okay. Yeah. So what I, what I would
2: say, to, and I've encountered this view as well, I think what, what, what comes out of it is that, I mean, the UK government, they want to be the good guys, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But to, to me, the, the major problem is that they equate being the good guys with no sibling casualties, which is not which is not mm-hmm. the reality. So, so, I think to me, I mean, this is something that the, U, the US has been undergoing this journey yeah. uh, over the last 10 years. So, I would say where the US is going, not, we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but where the US is going is redefining what the good guy looks like. Mm-hmm. So, the good guy doesn't say there were no casualties because yeah. it's not right. The good guy says, if there were civilian casualties that we caused, we are going to do the very best we can to account for them, and we also commit to doing everything we can to reduce them, including learning from the ones we caused. Uh, and, you know, so if, if, if you take that definition, the U.S. is doing
0: a better job than the U.K very interesting. And do you, do, I mean, it's very new in the UK that um, our listeners may not be aware, but the government was apprehensive about updating its protection of civilian strategy, which is an FCO-led document that has buy-in from the Ministry of Defence and the Department for International Development. Um, in October, they were saying that they didn't want to update it, and now, come the new year, fresh thinking, <laughs> uh, and now they've accepted that they, they feel that it may now be right to update that strategy, given... Uh, lots of anniversaries that are happening this year Um, but do you think that that is enough to in terms of the momentum around this issue is that enough to lead to changes in because I would imagine that this is going to need to address sort of military doctrine um, and going back to your point said about how you're partnering with with other states um, in engaging in these very densely populated areas um, how can this POC strategy which it seems like it's quite an ambitious sort of objective to have encompass all of those issues mm-hmm. how best do you think it is that the UK can really take the opportunity to use that strategy to address all these other issues so
2: I do think that's a reasonable start um, so what we, what we saw in the US. So in the U.S., um, we had our national policy on civilian casualty, civilian protection. That was in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a heavy lift for the U.S. It was <laughs> not an easy process, uh, and and you know we worked through a lot of, of fears and concerns and so forth. But what that has done is is having having a national uh, policy really done two things I think. First it, it's set kind of a national level infrastructure um, mm-hmm. so it's it's a number of policy commitments that all the different departments and agencies recognize and so it gives, it gives a common way to talk within the interagency about about all the different things that need to be done. I think it also helped de-risk further action so like right now the um, US military is developing military uh, doctrine, mm-hmm. military yep. policy on civilian protection. That we talked about doing this several years ago, and there was such resistance, we mm-hmm. just couldn't couldn't get anywhere. But now that there's a national policy, people look at that and go, you know, actually, you know, we were really afraid of yeah. it. But this is actually great. This is really <laughs> this is really helping us yeah. a lot. They see they see you know, real positive um, outcomes from this, and so. That de-risking is is helping to to mm-hmm. have a number of different things. I think it's kind of going down. So, so there's gonna be um, kind of a military policy, and that's gonna be an overarching policy, and then that has different components that will then be uh, built out even more. So you'll have like standard operating procedures, you'll have you know the need for additional doctrine in various areas. So it again there serves as this larger infrastructure yeah. that can be built out over time.
0: Did you want to ask something, Megan? Like well,
1: I'm just thinking, like, I think, especially in the U.K., there it does seem like it's very much political risk aversion that's holding back this process of trying to develop a policy to do this right. Um, whenever we spoke to the military, it, it appears that they do have some desire to be more realistic about acknowledging um, the casualties. So I think it would be interesting to see how in the U.K., once we get that political change, the political um, willingness to actually talk about the fact that, of course, in warfare, you do have casualties. And like you say, that... It, Being the bad, like being the good guy, isn't just saying we haven't killed anyone. It's acknowledging how it's happened and how you're going to improve, like going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it'd be really interesting to see in the UK, and I think it's quite different from the US, where um, it seems like there's more of a connection between the military and the political. Whereas here, we're waiting for the political to kind of give way um, to allow for that change in the military. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, fantastic. I mean, I think that's been really, really insightful in terms of learning from the U.S. experience, although, absolutely. you know, and as you've said, the U.S. appears to be sort of further ahead, and it's been a very long process to get there, right? So, um, we are in sort of the the, the early days of, of a shift, we hope, yeah. Sure. Um, and I think you're absolutely right in terms of the political energy around a particular issue needs to be there before you can get to that end point um, across many different uh, departments. Um, so, Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And thank you for coming in and speaking to us. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much.